Hey everybody, welcome back to Real Estate Happens this morning. You know, we had a great broadcast yesterday, ran into uh, uh, Dr. Corpu on uh, Talk To Me Tuesdays at Gather in, North, in uh, Virginia Beach, and we had just such a great conversation. Uh, but today I want to talk about, really focused a little bit more on real estate. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we have a lot of uh, people come to me and, and they say, hey, look, you know, uh, we just found a house. It's uh, really nice, and they get into the process, and they start to find out that there's some things that they didn't think about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how to find that perfect house, what to do when you find that house. We're going to talk a little bit about um, repairs and things of that nature. So we're just going to jump right in there and just kind of kind of get right to it. So, you know, when you first start looking for a house, most of the people, they find that that perfect house. They find it where? They find it on the Internet, right? Because that's where everybody starts looking. And pictures can be somewhat deceiving. But I want you to keep in mind, once you do uh, start looking for a house, there's really about three initial questions that you need to ask yourself. And you need to get an answer of, of yes to before you start um, really in earnest trying to figure out if that's a house you want to buy or not. And the first one is when you're driving into the house and you're driving through the neighborhood. Really pay attention to the, your surroundings. It, is it a street that you like? Uh, are sidewalks important to you? A lot of streets don't have sidewalks. Look and see if there's lighting uh, and that sidewalk is lit up. What is it conveniently located to? Is it things that you normally do in your life? Do you need to be close to a grocery store? Do you need to be around different things? So really pay attention to the neighborhood as you're driving in. And that's the first yes that you have to get. You have to have it because this is where you're going to be living and this is where you're going to be driving into and out of, where all you're going to be running all your errands to. And so it needs to be that location. You hear people talking real estate all the time. Location, location, location. And and that's great, uh, but there are some other factors that, that play into that. So question number one, do you like the neighborhood? Very, very important. Question number two, and this is as important as the other. As you pull up to the house, do you like the architecture of the home? Does the curb appeal appeal to you? When you look at that house, do you look at it and go, wow, that's a place I would like to live. This place really is nice. Or do you look at it and go, eh, it's okay. It's okay is not the, the, what you're looking for because you're literally going to be pulling up to and leaving that house on a daily basis. You've got to look at it every day. So it's got to be something when you pull up to that house, you're standing across the street, or you pull into that driveway, it's got to be something that is up appealing and appeasing to you. I'm not talking about details. I'm talking about a general sense of well-being when you look at that house. Same when you're driving in the neighborhood. If it's a yes, wonderful. You have two yeses. And the third one, again, is this, this gut reaction that you have. When your agent or you uh, walk into that front door and that front door opens and you step into that threshold, you will within probably 10 to 15 seconds, and I've seen this a lot, within 10 to 15 seconds, you're going to have a feeling as to whether you like this house or not. If you don't like that, and it could be something really simple. It could just be a feeling. It could be a smell. It could be, you know, just your view when you walk in the door. It doesn't matter what it is. Listen to that little brain in the back of your head yakking at you saying, 
hey, something's not right. I don't like it. Listen to it because if that's a no, then you should walk away. Don't waste your time even going through the house. So three questions you got to have a yes to. Driving through the neighborhood, you got to like it. When you pull up to the house, the curb appeal, the look of the house, something you have to, that has to be appealing to you. And when you walk in the house, you're going to get a feeling of what, just a general feeling of the house. And if all those three things are a yes, then you can start moving forward. Start moving forward with some of the more important things, like, like is the price priced correctly, right? I talk to my agents all the time. I've got about 16 agents and I talk to them all the time. And I'm like, you know, when you get ready to sell someone's house for them or help them sell a house and you're a listing agent, you spend a lot of time doing market research and trying to figure out what the market value of that home is. So you know where to list that house. You know what price point to put on that house. And that's great. You should be doing that for every seller you have. But the one agents don't do a lot is they don't do it for buyers, right? And you should be doing the same thing for a buyer. It's called a CMA, a cost market analysis, right? You should be letting your buyer know that, hey, look, here's what the other properties in the neighborhood that are like or similar to this property have sold for. Uh, this is how long they were on the market. This is where this house is priced based on the condition and some of the other things that we can change. I think this house is worth X. The listing agent doesn't represent you. They represent the seller and they're trying to get the most for that. And some agents do a really good job at pricing houses and some don't. They may overprice it or they may underprice it, but it's going to be so important for you to have your agent really dig deep and figure out what the true market value of that house is because it's going to help you structure your deal and how you write that offer and how it's presented to that seller is going to make all the difference in the world. So three S's and then start getting down to the nitty gritty. And the very first question you need to ask is, is this house worth what the seller is asking for it? Now, every market's going to be a little bit different as far as some of the other things, right? So, so we have our three yeses. We now have settled on how much we're going to offer for the house based on a market analysis. Now, there are some peripheral things uh, to think about in your offer that a lot of people don't really think about. They say, oh, well, I'm going to offer a certain amount. But there's a lot of other things to be considered, right? Are you doing a home inspection? And I, I hope everyone says, yes, we're absolutely doing a home inspection, right? Because I think that's super, super important. Now, we're coming out of a market, at least in our area, where buyers were so competitive, there were so many people trying to buy the same house, they were waiving home inspections. We won't even look at the house and make sure it's functional and solid and sound. We'll just buy it. And that's what it was taking to buy a house. But we're moving out of that market now, which is a good thing. People, you know, uh, Buyers are doing home inspections and they're getting these things done. So a couple of things on these peripherals, right? Are you getting a home inspection? What time frame are you doing that home inspection is? Believe it or not, a really important one, who's your lender, right? If you have a local lender, a lot of times, if it's a good, solid local lender, it seems to be more favorable for uh, listing or for listing for sellers when they have a local lender. It's somebody they know, somebody they trust in the area, uh, a bank or like, you know, Atlantic Bay is a local mortgage lender here and they do a great job and everybody knows that if your loan is going through Atlantic Bay, you're not going to have any problems. Uh, Rocket Mortgage, on the other hand, is a national lender. It's a lot of online uh, processing. And, you know, some people are a little leery of that. You know, who 
where's this loan officer if we start to run into problems? Is it, you know, somebody, some cloud-based person that they can't get a hold of? So believe it or not, it has an impact on how a seller views your offers as to the lender that you're using. So that's another super important thing to think about. We also want to talk about closing timeframes, right? How much time is it going to take you to actually buy this house? And really what we're saying is how long is it going to take for the seller to get their money? Now, there's different situations that we can think of here. So first one is generally speaking, there are exceptions to everything, but generally speaking, about 30 days is needed to get a loan closed, right? So by the time you get the appraisal done, the home inspection done, and any repairs done, and a title search done, all of these things are happening kind of at the same time. But by the time you get all that done and get down to the closing table, you're about 30 days down the line. Now, different types of loans can close quicker than others. Um, but it's more important, and I always, when I'm representing a buyer, I always ask the listing agent, what is the most desired closing time frame for the sellers? And the sellers may say, well, we know we need about 45 days because school's ending or school starting or, you know, hey, no, we would like to get out of that. Uh, we'd like to close as soon as possible. So that can help you structure your number of days to closing and that's going to be in every offer because your offer is going to be not just how much you're asking for the how much you're going to give them for the house what you're going to do in a home inspection it's also going to state when you're going to close and like i said generally you're going to put in that contract about 30 days that way you can kind of get everything done so uh, another really uh, important thing to think about now let's go back for just a second and talk about this home inspection and there's a lot of debates and a lot of areas do it a little bit differently. Uh, in our area, we have what's called a property inspection contingency, uh, where we have seven to 10 days to get a property inspection done and negotiate if we want any repairs done, or we can walk away from the house. Other states do what's called a feasibility or study period, where you get so many days to do whatever it is you want to do, whether that is... Um, looking at the home inspection or due diligence for title or due diligence for loans. It doesn't matter what it is. They, they wrap it all up into one, say, hey, you got to get everything done. But I want to talk specifically about the home inspection and repairs for that home inspection. So, uh, and, and generally what happens is, is that you go in, you get a good reputable home inspector and he inspects the systems of the house, the structural integrity of the house. He looks at your HVAC. He looks at the plumbing system. He looks at uh, your roof, uh, you know, really looks at the electrical and the electrical panel. And he's really making sure that everything is functioning as it's supposed to. He's also going to talk to you about the life of your HVAC. A good home inspector will be able to look at the serial number and tell you when it was in, when uh, it was in, the manufacturer's day was so we can tell about how old the system is. He's going to talk to you about different sear levels of your system. He's going to make sure that the outside uh, HVA system matches your furnace on the inside, if that's the type of setup you have, a bunch of different types. But he's going to look at all of these things. He's going to come back to this report, and, and that's what it is. I want you to understand it's a report. It's just telling you the current condition of the house. And what happens a lot of times is the buyers and the buyer's agents – We'll get this report, and then they'll make up this list and say, seller to repair, right, the following items. And they'll say, all rotted wood on exterior of home, 
needs to be replaced by a licensed contractor, or they'll say HVAC system uh, is not working at this time. Have seller inspect with a HVAC contractor and repair is necessary. And that all sounds great. Takes a lot of pressure off the buyer, puts all that onus back on the seller. Personally, that is not the way I do it. I take that time of that home inspection. I look at a home inspector as the guy that's going to go in and give me that overall big picture. And if he says to me, hey, some rotted wood needs to be replaced, or he says to me, hey, your HVAC, your air conditioning systems are are problematic, they're old, they're not functioning properly, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the time to go and get my own HVAC inspector to look at that system further to tell me exactly what is wrong with that system. I'm going to have him give me an invoice or an estimate for repair for that condition of that air conditioning or heating unit. And then I'm going to ask the seller to pay this invoice and have this work done. Now, the reason I do it that way is if somebody is trying to sell me, and I'm not saying that sellers are going to try to get over on you. I'm just saying I know people that I trust, and I don't know who he's hiring. He could hire some Billy Joe Jim Bob from wherever that says, yeah, the HVAC is fine. There's no problem, but it's really not. But if I hire the person to look at that, then I know I have trust in that person that they know what they're talking about and that they're not going to rip me off and they're not doing it for any other reason than that's what the problem is. So I'm hiring somebody I know. When you tell the seller to go hire somebody to inspect this, to tell you what is wrong with it so that you can pay for it, you guys see the conflict there, right? That's problematic in my my eyes and in my view. Same with the rotted wood situation, right? I'll have a contractor or a carpenter or whoever the tradesman is I need come out, look at that, tell me what is wrong, tell me what it's going to cost to fix it, and then I'm going to try to get the seller to pay that person to do the work. So let's talk about how that that goes down. So most uh, sellers are going to be like, well, I can hire, and this is it. I can get that done cheaper. Is that really what you want? You want to get it done cheaper? Cheaper doesn't always mean better. I can get it done for less. Maybe they've got somebody that's really good that can do it for less and will do just as good a job. Maybe they don't. But see, you're you're giving that control up to the person who is looking to hire the cheapest person, do it the cheapest way, get it done just so it barely passes, and you can and they can move on and sell you the house. They are not the ones that have to live with the aftermath of this work that is done. So in my opinion, super important for you to hire your own people so that you know exactly what's going to be done. So if they say to you or you get this pushback, hey, we can get that done much, much um, cost effective. We can, we've got somebody that can do it. Say, no problem. Get me an invoice and tell me who it is that's going to do the work. So they come back to you and they go, okay, well, look, you had a quote for $5,000. We have a quote for $4,000. In my opinion, it is worth it to say, fine, we're going to use my guy that's quoted at $5,000. You pay $4,000, I'll pay the difference. Now you're getting the work done by somebody you trust, somebody you know. You know that the work is going to be done right, and the person actually works for you because you're the one that's hiring.
So what happens a lot of times? The seller hires somebody to do the work. They come in, they do the work, you close on the house, they didn't work for you. So if you have a problem a month down the line, who are you calling? The guy's going to, most contracts will be like, hey, listen, I didn't do that work for you. I did it for this other person. You know, I'm done. But if you're the one that hired them, you have that relationship with that person or your agent has that relationship with that person, it's much, much more uh, meaningful and gives you the ability to go in and do that. So in my opinion, don't ask a seller to hire somebody to do the repairs. Go and get somebody to give you an estimate and ask the seller to pay this contractor based on this estimate. And a lot of times you'll find that the agent and the seller will actually be appreciative. Uh, the agent didn't have to run around and get a bunch of different quotes and the seller didn't have to take the time to spend a bunch of stuff to, to do that. Oh, the other one, never let the seller do the work themselves. And if you're the listing agent, I'm going to give you the same advice I gave everybody else because if the seller does the work on the house, then a month later, there's a problem with the work that he did. Well, the seller should be able to sell that house move on with his life and never have to look back. But if he did the work, then you're going to start getting phone calls. Hey, who did this work? Okay, it wasn't done right. There were these accusations that come out, and we see it all the time, and then it becomes this big argument. So uh, as you can tell, I'm spending a lot of time on this because I think it's a huge problem in our industry uh, where we ask the seller to hire someone, and then the seller acts like the government. They hire the the, the lowest bidder uh, to do the job and the lowest bidder is not always the right person for the job. So I'll kind of get off of that. Just that's kind of the whole repair thing that you need to be looking at. And if you've got a good real estate agent that knows what they're doing, they'll understand uh, how this goes down. So that's my thought on that. Next part of the process, uh, once you have come to an agreement on repairs and you can start moving forward from that contingency, the appraiser is going to go out. Now, there's a lot of different things can happen when the appraiser goes out. Remember, the appraiser is hired by your lender, and he is a non-biased third party, right? And, and you pay for it, but they work for the lender, and their job is to make sure that the lender is not loaning more money on the property than the property is actually worth. So you can offer anything you want to on a house. Uh, if you want to be competitive, don't go crazy. But when that appraisal comes in, the lender is not going to loan you any more money than what the house is appraised for. And you're more than welcome to pay the difference out of pocket in cash. Uh, and we saw that in a market where it was very, very competitive, but we're not in that market now. So just know that the appraiser is going to go out. He's not going to talk to your buyer. Uh, he will call the listing agent. He'll make the appointment. He'll go out. He'll assess the house. He's going to base it off comps in the neighborhood, uh, what the current market is doing overall, look at trends, and then come up with a value for that home. If the value comes in low, there's generally a provision within your contract that says if the home doesn't appraise for the purchase price, then the buyer can walk away. So really when the house doesn't appraise, one of about three or four things uh, happen. All right, Number one, uh, the seller says, okay, I'm going to lower the price to the appraised value, and then you settle on a new purchase price. The seller says, I'm not paying that, and buyer decides to make up the difference of the gap adding cash, and he buys the house. Or they can split it, 
right? Half and half. Okay, I'll come down, uh, say the house appraised at five fifty. Uh, the purchase price was five fifty-five. You come to an agreement where you're going to pay five fifty-two five, and the seller is so that you come up and pay twenty-five hundred dollars out of pocket. Seller drops the price by twenty-five hundred dollars, and you come to an agreement that way. Some of the other things that may come into play. If the seller was giving you closing costs, let's say you, you offered on a $400,000 house and the seller agreed to pay maybe 3% of the purchase price towards the buyer's closing costs. That, you know, that's separate from down payment and all that other stuff. If that was to occur, then one of the first things most sellers come back and ask to go away when we have a low appraisal situation is, is, hey, look, we'll drop to the, to the appraised price but we're no longer going to give you closing cost assistance. So it becomes another negotiation point uh, within the contract. We always think that, you know, when we initially negotiate the price of the house, you know, our negotiation is done. We just have to follow the contract. But there's always different points throughout the way to kind of keep the deal together uh, that we run into an uh, additional negotiation. Uh, repairs is a negotiation point. The appraisal is a negotiation point, especially if it comes in low. So we've talked about what happens if it comes in low. What happens if it comes in high? And the answer is nothing. Thank, uh, thank your lucky stars. You just bought a house below value, which is a great thing, right? So you buy a house at, uh, you know, you've agreed to pay $550. It appraises for $560. That's great. The seller does not have to be told what it appraised for. Remember, you paid for the appraisal. And it goes to your lender, and that is confidential information that is not given to the the listing agent or the seller. None of their business. The only time you have to give them that information is if it's low and you're trying to renegotiate, because obviously they need to know what they're renegotiating for. Uh, they need to have some um, facts of, of where the price actually came in, so they got to look at the evidence of the appraisal to be able to do that. Once that's done, you know, that pretty much will remove all of your contingencies. And at this point, you're really just kind of moving towards closing. Uh, the title company or the attorney, uh, depending on what kind of state you're in, uh, is going to start doing the title search. Make sure there's no liens, encumbrances, or things of that nature uh, on the property that would cause someone to be in a higher lien position than you are uh, on the property. So they want to make sure there's no no money owed to anybody else that's tied to the house. It's one of the biggest jobs of running a title search. And then once you get the title search run, you also want to make sure you're looking at, uh, or they're, everybody else is looking at, um, encumbrances on the property, easements on the property, and things of that nature. And one of the, and although those are recorded and can be found on the title search, one of the most important things you can do, especially for a, a single family property or single family home uh, that's sitting on, you know, it's got a, a, a yard and a lot that's to it, is to get a survey. So when we talk about title insurance, right? So title insurance, you know, protects you if there was something of record that your title company missed or when they did a title search, they missed. Let's say they missed a lien and they went ahead and now um, there's a, there's a, a $2,000 lien that takes precedence over um, your lien because it's whichever one is filed first in the lien position. Let's just say, for example, they missed that. Somebody comes back later and says, oh, well, you owe us, you know, $2,000 because it's attached to the property. If that was missed, that was a mistake, then title insurance will 
pay to fight that either in court, and if they lose, then they'll they'll pay to make you whole and make your title policy clear and pay off that difference. That's what title insurance is for. Title insurance is not about who pays for the mistake. It's about who fights that mistake in court. Um, and title insurance, are, they have tons of lawyers on staff to be able to do that for you. Without title insurance, you're going to be fighting that battle in court yourself and not something you want to do because that can get expensive fairly quickly. But I bring up the title insurance because I, I want to talk about the survey in regards to the title insurance. Uh, I think it's Schedule B on the title insurance policy. I, I Don't quote me on that, I think. List exceptions to your title insurance. And if you don't get a survey, what that section will say is that there will be no coverage for any issues that could have or should have been um, identified if you would have gotten a survey. So if you get you don't get a survey, and let's say there's a fence that's 20 feet into your property, or even more scary, let's say one of your buildings was built and it was built on a property line. If you would have gotten a survey, then your title insurance would cover that. Now, let me, if you get a survey and you find that, you're going to deal with that at closing. But let's say you've got a survey and the surveyor screwed up, right? He screwed up. He, you know, he put that building and showed it, you know, that, that it wasn't on the property line, uh, but it actually was. And we find out years later that it was because he screwed up the survey. Your title insurance will cover that. Your title insurance will actually kick in and make sure it's good because you've got a survey. But if on Schedule B, they do a exception for the survey, anything that could or should have been found on the survey and one wasn't done, then it's not going to be covered. So it's always uh, important to get that survey, uh, to know where your fences are, to know where any improvements that have been put on a property, any easements, encroachments, or things of that nature. Uh, and, and look, if you're ever going to put up a fence, you need a survey anyway. So it's a good thing to have, not that expensive, uh, $400 or $500, depending on the size of the property. If you're doing multiple acres, then obviously that gets a little bit more, uh, a little bit crazy. All right. So that kind of takes us all the way up to the closing table, right? So day of closing, a couple things you need to kind of bring with you. Uh, picture ID, a check if you're bringing money to the table, and a good writing implement to be comfortable with because you're going to be signing papers for about an hour. Um, and you get everything signed and really you're all done at that point. They slide the keys across the table. You find everything and you're a homeowner. Uh, and a lot of people, I, I see this sometimes where someone buys a house and then they call me every six months. Hey, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Understand when you buy a house, you take ownership of that house. You're a homeowner. You kind of maintain that property yourself. Can't be looking to somebody else and saying, hey, well, we didn't find this when they sold the house. Well, yeah, that's why you have a home inspection and all these other things. So kind of look towards that. Um, guys, that's really uh, all I have for you today. Just want to kind of go over that home buying process. Uh, catch us on uh, Real Estate Happens on uh, Spotify and Apple, all these other places. Catch us here on uh, Buzzsprout. We're going to be doing uh, Talk To Me Tuesday like we did yesterday. If you didn't catch that, it was a great conversation. We'll be doing that again on Tuesday. Looking forward to it. Uh, this is Kenny Ledner with Real Estate Happens. Hope you guys have a great day. Hope you go out and buy some great houses invest in real estate.